that as our prayer, dear Lord, that we would follow you. May we follow you by listening to your word with hearts intent on obedience and trust that we would believe what you have said and understand that the words that you give us here in the Bible are words that come with power, divine power to overcome, to overcome our sin, to do what's right, to live righteously, to live selflessly and for you and you alone. So help us do this for your glory, we ask in the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. We are so privileged today to open the all-sufficient Word of God. In the Bible, there were several times and twice prominently when the people of God discovered the Word of God afresh. Once was in the reign of Josiah when they found the Bible or the Word of God, the scrolls in the temple as they were cleaning it up, and the other time was when they returned from exile and Ezra stood up and read and explained the Bible to the returned exiles both times when the Word was discovered, read, internalized, obeyed. It sparked national revival, a return to God, a turn to His truth, a retrieval of those ancient truths and practices leading to widespread salvation and widespread honor of Yahweh. That's why we never want to lose our grip on the Word of God. God has spoken, and He has preserved His perfect Word in written form. It is our life, the spiritual bread that we feast on, and it is the centerpiece of our worship, praise, and fellowship. So let's look here in Jonah 3, and we turn our attention to a revival that happened not among the people of God, but in a city full of pagans. It was the center, centerpiece of an awakening that happened in Nineveh. You know, in Romans chapter 11, Paul said that he highlighted his ministry to the Gentiles as to make the Hebrews jealous and turn to the gospel. He wanted his fellow Jews to see the power of the word alive and active in saving the Gentiles. And knowing then that God had given them initially the word, these Jews would be pierced and turned back to God. Well, this is exactly what's happening in Jonah. Jonah was the caricature of rebellious Israel. And to add irony to injury, so to speak, Jonah's ministry there in this massive awakening in this pagan city, city, the centerpiece of which was God's Word. If only the people of Israel in Jonah's day would listen to the Word of God, obey the Word of God, and Jonah himself turned to the Word of God, they too would find themselves in the middle of a great revival, a great awakening. Well, let's read this account of the revival there in Nineveh. Some say it might be more accurately called an awakening because these people were dead to begin with, had no knowledge of God. And it's found there in Jonah chapter 3. Let me read it aloud as you follow along. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great 
city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, uh, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. We live in a context of a very Christian, and I say that in the broadest way possible, a very Christian nation. You might want to say better than that, Christianized nation. People are familiar with God and the Bible and Jesus, even if they reject Him or reject the biblical God or the biblical Christ. There is some level of familiarity, and there is also familiarity with the idea of revival and I would say similarly, just as people misunderstand who Jesus is and who God is and what salvation is, they often misunderstand what the Bible means when it talks about revival or perhaps awakening or things like this happening. We have truly a corrupted sense. And so I'd like to spend the first few minutes talking about a biblical depiction of when these things happen, when God came, comes to places like Nineveh and other places, the people of God, as I mentioned earlier, and he sparks revival or awakening. And what I'd like to do is, in order to understand this, I think what we need to do is talk about ministry philosophy. I introduced my small group a few weeks ago to this idea of ministry philosophy. Every church, even if they hold to a number of different driving philosophies of how they do and why they do ministry, every church ultimately inexorably has a driving ministry philosophy. And I believe you could sort of boil it down to, to four primary philosophies that, that govern churches today, particularly in America. The first philosophy is what is known as pragmatism. You've heard me talk about this a lot. Pragmatism is sort of fleshed out in what is called the church growth movement. Pragmatism truly was a philosophy that predated pragmatism in the church. And pragmatism governed the morality or truth or reality of something based upon quantifiable results. Everything is built on quantifiable results. And so pragmatism in the church says, well, we grow the kingdom by making our church bigger. We make God's kingdom bigger by making our church bigger. And so what we have to do is organize everything we do in church around one central idea, and that is getting bigger making our budget bigger, making our congregation bigger, making our 
finances, our giving has to be bigger, everything must be bigger, and they sort of look at church as a a, a business proposition, a marketing proposition, because all that you're doing is geared toward making it bigger. How do you preach? Well, you preach in such a way that more people would come and listen to it. How do you do children's ministry? Well, you do children's ministry in such a way that more children would show up, and parents would have children begging them to come to church. How do you do music and worship? Well, you do music and worship that is the most uh, 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 appealing type of music and worship to the people in the world. You, you do what appeals to the most people as to attract them to your church. It's all built on making the church bigger. That is pragmatism. And, of course, some of you talk to many of you who have been in churches like this. I've been in churches like this. In fact, I would say for a big part, maybe 50% of my ministry... That was my driving ministry philosophy. I wanted the biggest church in America. I thought, and in an earnest way, I thought, well, that's the way I glorify God. That's the way I grow the kingdom is by trying to have a big church, the biggest church possible. And I must do everything I can to have the biggest church and grow my church to the biggest thing possible. That is the philosophy of pragmatism. And perhaps you've been in a church that sort of organizes everything around that idea. Maybe they have other philosophies, maybe they have other things, but the driving philosophy ultimately is pragmatism. The second philosophy I would introduce you to is the philosophy of denominationalism. Denominationalism is the idea that a denomination, it doesn't even have to be a denomination, it could be just a pastor and a movement, that they've They've done things rightly. They, to follow this person or to follow this denomination is the safest and soundest way to do things. It's safe because you, you can just get underneath them and just sort of flow in their kind of ministry, do what they do, sing the songs they sing, preach like they preach, do the curriculum, use the curriculums that they use, just sort of flow in that way. And if you do it that way, it's, it's a very safe thing to do. It's also sound because, I mean, if this person you esteem as a sound theologian, or if this denomination is a sound denomination, then you know that it's biblical, and you can sort of just hover in behind that and just flow with it, and you know it's sound. And it's also successful, right? I mean, you see this denomination, or you see this particular church movement or pastor, and you see the success, and you say, you know, it's safe, it's sound, it's successful, so let's just get in the flow of things. Don't have to think too much for ourselves. Don't have to design things too much for ourselves if we just do it the denominational way. Or perhaps like this famous pastor, if we just sort of get in and just do everything like that, everything will be okay. We don't really have to suss things out ourselves. That's denominationalism. That's sort of a dying mentality, but it is still around, I would say, especially outside of denominations in terms of celebrity pastors. The third philosophy is the philosophy that we hold here at NBC, and it is a philosophy of Calvinism. And I don't say that in terms of five points, and we could certainly defend the five points of Calvinism. I'm talking about a philosophy of Calvinism. The philosophy is this. Calvin, when he began to look at the church and what they did in the church, he said, what does the Bible say? He, he asked the question, uh, what is, what, how are we supposed to preach? Well, what does the Bible say? How are we supposed to do worship? What does the Bible say? How are we supposed to do missions? What does the Bible say? And this constant drive back to Scripture, what does Scripture say? Kind of like the Bereans when Paul visited these people. They asked that question, what do the Scriptures say? 
That's the driving mentality in our church. It's not so much that we're dedicated to Calvin. This is probably the second or maybe third time in 13 years I've even mentioned John Calvin from this pulpit. It's not about him. It's about simply looking to Scripture, looking to what Scripture says. If we want to know how to preach, we look to Scripture. What does Scripture say about preaching? We don't ask what's most appealing. We don't ask what does some other pastor do, what does some denomination do. We ask what does Scripture say about preaching. When we talk about our worship up here, what we do up here, we ask the question, what does the Bible say about worship? What does God say? How does God say He wants to be worshipped? We ask that question. Calvin asked that question and he derived a, an idea, the regulative principle. We're going to regulate our worship by how God has said He wants to be worshipped. And so we ask that question, what, does this, what do the Scriptures say? That's our driving philosophy. That's our driving mentality. Perhaps you can come up with a better name than Calvinism, but I know that Calvin, this is very near and dear to his heart. And so in terms of philosophy, I think that matches his philosophy the best. The fourth philosophy, and this is sort of pertinent to our discussion today, and it's the one I want to key in on for a little bit because I think it may be what a lot of us have in our minds and I want to make sure that we have a truly biblical understanding of this. That is a philosophy of revivalism. Revivalism has as its goal getting people to have a divine experience. Somehow providing the context and the emotional fervor to, to motivate a person or to manipulate in a person some sort of divine experience. It may be genuine salvation, that experience. Or perhaps that experience may be a recommitment to the things of God, a, a step up in their spiritual life. The whole goal of this philosophy is to provide an experience to people that is divine. You want people to have and experience, and so that's what you're all about. How do you preach? Well, you preach in order that people would have some sort of experience. How do you do worship? Well, you worship in such a way that it would provide some sort of experience for people. Everything you do, going back through all those things in ministry, how you sing music, how you preach, how you organize a church, how, what you do in terms of even for your facility, leadership, prayer, all those decisions are basically and fundamentally governed by this objective of trying to get people to have some sort of experience with the divine. Now, the idea behind revivalism goes something like this. If some individual would, would have some sort of experience, some sort of personal revival, they, they might draw someone else in with them, and that other person perhaps sort of spills over into their life and that other person begins to experience revival, and maybe you get a small group, and a small group of people, if they're fervent enough, they're crying out enough, that they're praying enough, maybe, maybe that whole group experiences revival, and, and perhaps, if God wills, that would even spread to the whole church and, and beyond the church walls, even to the community, and beyond the community, the city, and beyond the city, even to the country. That sort of is the driving idea of revivalism. If we think about this experience, if we think about revival, if we cry out for revival, if we're passionate enough for revival, if we talk about revival enough, if we discuss it enough, if we gear everything around this idea of this revival, this experience, maybe we could have it 
And they would change individuals and groups and churches and communities, cities, and even our country. That's revivalism in a nutshell. Well, revivalism came from what took place in really what was the second half of the Second Great Awakening. First Great Awakening happening that happened that was in the 1730s and 40s. The Second Great Awakening about 60 years later, generally it was uh, the children and grandchildren of those in the First Great Awakening. In fact, the first part of that Second Great Awakening was really just an extension of the First Great Awakening. But eventually there was a fellow who arose in great prominence in that Second Great, second great Awakening, and that was a guy by the name of Charles Grandison Finney. Finney had some bizarre beliefs. He rejected original sin. He believed a person by his own willpower could cause his own regeneration. He rejected what we understand as substitutionary atonement. And he was a guy who believed, sort of flowing from everything he taught, he believed that you could cause revival. If you got the certain pieces in place, if you got people hyped up enough, he believed and taught that you could cause revival. In fact, look no further than his own ministry. He put things into place. He, he perfected certain aspects of the church in order to sort of whip people up into an emotional fervor so that he could say, we've, we've initiated revival in this city or this town. He took, there was a, a very obscure practice back then. Very few people had even heard of it or knew about it. He took this practice and he popularized it in such a way that you hardly don't ever see it anymore in the church in the South. It's called the altar call. You ever heard of that? He made that popular. It was something very obscure, very small, and he thought, this is a really good tool. Maybe on the third verse of Just As I Am, maybe the fourth verse, maybe the seventh verse. Let's go just one more verse. We can just get these people excited and whipped up in such a way that I can cause revival. And he genuinely believed that he could go from city to city and cause revival in those cities. Interesting, many years later, I actually read some of the journals of his assistant. His assistant said, what I've noticed in some of the cities that he's caused, quote, revival, is those cities within a few months are worse than they were before we got there. I don't know that he genuinely caused revival. He thought he did. But he perfected this, this mentality of whipping people up in emotions, getting them pumped up, excited, thrilled, and somehow having this experience that he would say is an experience with God. Now that mentality toward the end of the Second Great Awakening eventually led churches to adopt this, especially across the South, but really all of America, if you grew up in any kind of Christian home uh, any time before 1990, I guess, you would know that many churches would have an annual what? Revival. You would have a revival meeting. And the idea, maybe they wouldn't say it out loud, but the idea is that we can spark revival. We can make revival happen. What do we do? Well, we get a preacher, definitely someone better than our regular preacher. <laughs> get someone in here who can really whip people up, get better music than what we normally have, Get them in here and have a couple of weeks and maybe we can whip something up and people can get excited about this revival. Let's do this annually. Let's try to get this thing sparked and get this thing going annually. That's revivalism. 
Finney's mentality, again, contradicted what happened in the early part of the Second Great Awakening and certainly what happened in the First Great Awakening. If you read Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, what you find is the same refrain. We're just trying to teach truth. It's up to God whether people have an experience with Him. We're not in charge of spiritual experiences. That's God's divine prerogative. We're not in charge of church growth. That's God's divine prerogative. Jonathan Edwards famously talked about what is false and true, signs of false and true revival. I'm going to summarize a couple of them here in in my own language. Just being excited about spiritual things does not a revival make because these things can be faked. They can be manipulated. You can actually manipulate feelings. There is such a thing later on what... I think it was Hank Hanegraaff or someone that coined the term group hypersuggested. You can get people whipped up. There are things you can do, words you can say, music you can play in such a way that it will manipulate something that's not divine at all. It's just human emotions run amok. Edwards and others would go on and say the only way we know something is true is if there's faithful preaching and teaching of the Bible. And then if we know we can certify that God has really done a work is, in, is when we see the long-term effects that people are still, after years, still dedicated to the Bible, still dedicated to the truth. That's when we know that God is working. Jonathan Edwards would actually tone down, we know this, he would tone down his sermons to subdue the crowd, to subdue the emotions so they could focus simply on the truth of God's Word and let the truth do its work. My whole point today, my whole point of this message is to show you that genuine awakening, genuine revival is not something that we can whip up. It's not something that you can create by just talking about revival all the time. Genuine revival, genuine awakening is anchored in the truth of God's Word. There was something not long ago that happened in another state and people were starting to ask, is this real revival? Is this awakening? Is this another move of God like the first and second great awakenings? And, and I just asked some questions. I said, well, let's look at the preaching. Is the preaching biblical? Is it sound? Exposition of, the, of God's Word. What about the music? Are they singing God's Word? Is this sound music that comes from sound biblical sources? What about what's happening after that? Are they, are they embracing biblical truth? What about the people who are leading the, the long-term Christians that are involved in this? Are these, are these people that have decades of sound doctrine and sound theology? Just asking those questions to some people, made me sort of an anathema, a party pooper. You can't question this. How can you question what they're experiencing? Well, I've had a lot of experiences. Some of them involve a bad burrito. I've had all kinds of emotional turmoil up and down. That doesn't mean by default, just because I'm elated, that it's of God. I also know that my emotions can be manipulated. People can say things and do things. Music can move me. Just music, not even words. Just music can move me. The only way we can know it's a true work of God is if the preaching is clearly 
biblical preaching, if the singing is clearly biblical singing, if the, the, the permanent effects of that so-called revival are, are with them, that people walk away more dedicated to the Word than ever before, repenting of, of genuine sins, not just up repenting small sins so as to keep the ball rolling, but genuinely turning away, genuinely turning away from bad doctrine. The school, in fact, that this happened at, happened at embraces a series of bad doctrines. Didn't hear one thing, one iota, that they might have turned away from those bad doctrines. No, a true revival is something that God does on His own, oftentimes in spite of us, and He does it not because we're all passionate and crying out and talking about and discussing revival all the time and defining our whole Christian walk as to when we had certain revivals, but simply when we focus on His Word, simply when we trust His truth and let Him decide if there's going to be revival, if there's going to be maturity, a fast maturity, slow maturity. Our objective is simply to walk the normal Christian life. All that to say, sort of relating in sort of an applicational way at the beginning of this, the ideal Christian is someone who just focuses on simply knowing, obeying, and proclaiming the Word of God, just focusing on the Word of God. You'll notice that neither Jonah nor the pagan Ninevites even wanted revival. There was nobody crying out, some prayer group, and getting all excited. No one even wanted it, except for God. Completely under God's prerogative. And when God wants something like this to happen, He will introduce His holy, powerful Word in a faithful way to our human existence. This is the normal Christian life we are to live. It is to live not sitting around hoping for some new move, hoping for some quote-unquote outpouring or whatever. We live our lives anchored in the truth of Scripture. If God grants us fast growth, slow growth, that's His prerogative. If God grants us in our spheres of influence lots of salvations or no salvations, that's His authority. We're not going to try to manipulate something in order to pat ourselves on the back and say we were part of something great, we are part of some kind of great move. We can pray for revival just like we can pray for church growth. I pray for church growth all the time. I've prayed for revival in our church. It's not wrong to pray for those things. But to make your whole existence, your whole ministry philosophy revolve around that, it's just frankly unbiblical. You make the Word of God the centerpiece of your ministry. Well, this is how God caused revival in Jonah's day. He caused revival by bringing the Word of God, His Word, to bear on sinful man. And then God worked in the hearts of people on His own, without their pleading or without their prayer groups or without anything else. God worked on their hearts, and He opened their eyes to the truth of His Word. And that's what caused revival. That's what caused true revival. So, Let's look at this passage. I'm going to draw three very brief points. We do have the Lord's table today. So I'm going to draw three very brief points under this theme that the centerpiece of revival is indeed God's Word. 
Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it the message that I tell you. Uh, some have tried to make a lot about the fact that he doesn't give him the message like he did in that first chapter. He says, the message that I tell you, as though he was going to get another message. I don't know that we can make too much about that, because it seems to be the same message or very similar message as what Jonah had originally, which was simply that Nineveh would be judged. Nineveh was about to be overthrown. The only one that could stop that would be the mercy of God. If they bowed in repentance and worshiped God, that mercy would come to them. But the Word of God, I want to focus on this idea that the Word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, call out against it, the message I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the Word of the Lord. And then we read, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey breadth. In other words, Jonah began to walk three days across, three days across. Jonah began to walk all across that city preaching Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Three ideas here. One is God's word and the believer. God's word speaks to the believer. Something that I've said throughout my ministry from the very beginning that I noticed is that God's true people love God's word. You give them God's word and they can't get enough. They they want more of God's Word. They love God's Word. God's Word comes to them. They love it, and they are responsive. And I believe at this point, this is still where Jonah is. We come off of chapter 2. Jonah has repented. God has saved him and called him again, commissioned him again. And the Word of God comes to Jonah, and Jonah does it. Jonah preaches it. He obeys God. God has spoken to him. Now, it's important at this point when we compare ourselves to the prophets, saying things like God's Word coming to us, to remember that God has not chosen you or me as a prophet or apostle, capital P, capital A. The church is on the foundation of the prophets and apostles. God, God has already spoken through the prophets and apostles, and that's what we have in the Word of God. That's already established. We don't get new revelation. The canon, meaning the measure and completeness of Scripture, the canon of Scripture is closed. We don't get to add things to it with our own dreams or revelations. We, don't, we aren't spoken to God like Jonah was spoken to God. So it's an important, it's a nuance, but it's important nuance, right? It's important to remember that because we have a lot of friends, right, that will tell you, oh, God said only to this and God told me to this and he told me to back my car up three inches and this would happen if I did this, if I did that. And they talk about God talking to him all the time. And I would say, well, I mean, in a providential way, God is probably guiding you with good instincts and other things, but He's not giving you new revelation. He's not giving you something akin to Scripture, akin to what's happening here when God speaks to Jonah or when God spoke to Moses or the Apostle Paul. We don't get new revelation. We build our lives off the revelation that's already been given. God doesn't give us this direct revelation guidance, instruction specifically. No, God has already spoken and it is enough to supply all of our needs. It's enough for us to find godliness. It's enough to adequately equip us for every good work. It's already established. It's there. And we trust that God, through the wisdom of the Scripture, 
and good interpretation, we'll understand the principles and guide our lives by it. That's how God speaks to us today. You say, what is the Holy Spirit's role? The Holy Spirit's role in that is to take that word and show you how you can live it out in your life. He's not giving you new revelation. He's just demonstrating for you in your mind. He's bringing to mind how I am to obey these things that are already established. So I just want to make sure you understand, God's not going to come to you in a vision or a dream or speak to you audibly. I know there's a lot of people who say he did. You may even be one of those. Say, I heard, he said like an audible voice. Some people say, more than audible, whatever that means. God spoke. You may have felt like you heard those things. You may feel like you saw, had a dream or a vision or whatever. I would just tell you, as soon as you start trusting in those things, you're elevating those things above God's word. If you start saying, well, that's how God speaks to me, you're saying, I have less use for God's word and more use for these visions that I may interpret rightly or I may interpret wrongly. So I would just say, just look to God's word. And I think it's very safe to look to your dreams or visions or voices that you hear. Just simply look to God's Word, try to draw good conclusions. God's Word has been spoken already. It's right here in the Word. Draw the principles from it and live by it. The Holy Spirit will grant you application, how you're to obey that. You don't need to be on some hunt, just like you're not on some hunt for revival. You're not on some hunt for God's secret will that He's hidden from you unless you really press for it hard enough. When you inject God's Word into your life, God is speaking to you. When you read the Word of God, God is speaking to you. There was an article John Piper wrote some times ago, and Piper leans a little bit charismatic, so I was cautious when I saw the title of this article. It said, The Morning I Heard the Voice of God. But as I read it, I realized he's talking about when he was reading the Bible. He went on in this article to say, People have a misplaced amazement for some reason, They think that hearing voices is better and greater and more relevant than simply reading the Bible. Rather, Piper said, the Bible is the very voice of God. In it, he speaks to the 21st century. Piper went on to say, I grieve at what is being communicated in the Christian world today. The great need of our time is for people to experience the living reality of God by hearing His Word personally and transformingly in Scripture. The joy of Scripture is something that comes to us. We read the Bible, we begin to study it, we begin to know it, and the joy of Scripture is that it comes to us as, to use John Piper's word, transformingly. It comes to us not just in knowledge or in doctrine, it comes to us to change us and empower us to obey. God empowers you to obey. And this is exactly what happened with Jonah, right? The word of the Lord came to him. He told him what to do, what to say, what to preach. It explained to him. Obviously, there was more to it than what we read here. There's no, it didn't need to be put down for us here to know exactly what God was saying because it was specific to Jonah's ministry. Jonah was given this, and Jonah stood up and did the very thing he swore he would never do, and that is he went and became an evangelist to the Ninevites. He preached for three days all across the city. Jonah began to experience, as he began to preach the Word, the power of God's Word to the unbeliever. That's number two, God's Word and the unbeliever. Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called 
for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. So the word of God came to Jonah, empowered and transformed him and enabled him to do what he's supposed to do. And the same powerful word then came to this lost man, this king and many others in the kingdom, and it empowered them to be broken over their sin. Some of you know what that's like. You know exactly. You may even be able to name the time and the place as the word suddenly came like a light bulb in your mind. It suddenly was real to you. And you finally said, I'll be whatever you want me to be, God. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'm broken in any way you want me to be broken. Here's this man, a pagan. And if you study much, I won't get into it, but if you study much about the kind of things that they did worshiping their false gods in Nineveh, it was awful. This is a filthy man, a vile man, and he immediately knew he deserved judgment. And this very cultural Middle Eastern way of showing his, his, his penitence, his brokenness, his repentance, was to put on, to take off the clothes of a king, which were prominent and were to demonstrate his power and wealth and might, and he put on the clothes of a beggar because that's where his soul was, and he sat in ashes to represent that I'm just burnt up. I'm completely, I'm as low, I'm even lower than dirt. I'm ashes. I'm one with the ash. I'm filth. And he humbled himself before Almighty God. That's the power of God in his word, even to non-believers. James 1.16, do not deceive my, deceive my brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What is a good gift, James, you're talking about? Of his own will, he brought us forth, speaking of salvation, he raised us spiritually, he brought us forth, how? By the word of truth. Romans 10, verse 14, How then will they call upon them whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Verse 17, Paul's conclusion, Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. And the word of Christ is this spoken, preached word of God, the gospel message. That is what activates faith in the heart of God of an unbeliever. How does God save souls? Does He do it with dreams and visions and all kinds of things? No, He brings the people in touch with the Word of God. He puts them in touch with truth. Perhaps it's a preacher, perhaps it's a missionary, perhaps it's a, a street evangelist like Jonah. He puts them in touch with His Word because that's where His power is. That's how He brings souls forth. Awakening, the spread of revival is not with the spread of excitement and thrill or passion or great music. It is a spread of the Word of God, preached. And God uses His Word to spark obedience and energize obedience in the life of His followers 
and unbelievers alike. These people believed, repented in humility, they were broken, and God had mercy on them. For an entire generation, God had mercy on them. God turned away from the judgment that they all, and truly if you think about your own life, that we all too receive, uh, deserve. Verse 7, and he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that, what, that, that, so that we may not perish. And God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Interesting note here. He didn't say, well, here's the formula for great revival. He just did what God's Word told him to do, and that is to repent in sackcloth and ashes. It wasn't a guarantee. Maybe this sovereign God will preserve us from these oncoming, obviously there was some kind of military thing, from this oncoming onslaught. Perhaps God will do this. We don't know. All we know is to do what He says, and that is to be broken before Him. But he might do it, so let's fall on our faces and worship him. So this brings us to number three, God's word in the city. The idea is God's word spreading. If there is any hope for any city, if there is any hope for any state, any nation, it is not with Christian hype. It's with the spread of the word of God. It's not with creating a moral majority. It's not by finding Christians in places of leadership. Believe it or not, revival does not hinge on free speech. God can make His kingdom go without, grow without free speech. And I know we all want to maintain free speech, and it seems to be ever encroaching on us, right? But God can still grow His kingdom without a nation with free speech. So now we have the mayor of Nineveh, which is what it's called, the king, who bows in humility. He hears the word of God. Clearly, he believed the word of God. It was truth to him. Clearly, he knew his only hope was to seek mercy and grace to Jonah's God, the one true God, Yahweh. And when he bowed in humility and everybody else with him, we could say God had caused awakening in that city. Not because of any determination or any action of their own, but because of the power and the centrality of God's Word. Well, let's pray that we would embody the Word and speak the Word of God to others. It is truly our only hope as individuals and as a nation. Let's bow and pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We do believe it is our only hope. It is, it is truly what empowers us, what enables us, your Word, going all the way back to creation, Your Word is what creates, it what, it's what resurrects. And so we pray that Your Word would be active in us today, that we would create our ministry and our lives, our families, even our personal life around Your truth revealed in Your Word. Lord, we do not worship words on a page. We worship You 
that you have told us, you have explained, even in this passage we looked at today, you have demonstrated that this is where you do your work. It's through your word. And so we trust in your word. I pray that the word of God is a centerpiece for all that we do here at the church, but even in our lives. Help us to know it, obey it, proclaim it. And Lord, I pray that you would have used your word to speak to the hearts of those who don't know you. Call them to salvation. Help them believe in Jesus. Help them be broken like this king of Nineveh and others that day were. Call them to salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name.